we're headed into Philippians uh, next Thursday night, and um, couldn't help but thinking about Philippians 1.6. He began the work, and he's going to be faithful to complete it. So if you belong to Christ, he will hold you fast. Uh, he will see to it that that work is completed. So I'm um, excited to be in that letter in, starting next week. But for tonight, um, we are in our series on the church. And it really started on our first Sunday together in August, a few weeks back. I told you that I, if I could have just one conversation with you, especially if you were new, uh, that one conversation would be to make the local church a top priority. I would want to talk about the, the role of the church. I would encourage you to join it, submit to its leaders, be taught, pour yourself out for the people of that congregation. And we look together on that Sunday at so many reasons the Bible gives us to do this. Why we should prioritize the church. We saw that the church is a huge deal to God Himself. It's designed by Him for our protection, for our growth, and so many other reasons. And the Lord Himself wants every believer to prioritize His his church. So we looked at that. And so we said, if it's that important, if it's that important, then we need to know how to pick one. And if you're here, you need to know how to reason with your friends around equipping them on how to pick one, right? With so many churches in Lynchburg, how do you go about choosing a church to commit to? Now, that might seem like a simple question, but how you answer that question is crucial. And there's often a lot of unbiblical answers given to that question. We looked at some of them last time that we were together. But I heard a really sad example of an answer to that question just this week. On Friday, you Liberty students had a convocation on the importance of the local church. How many of you were there? Yeah. It had a panel, for those of you who weren't there, there was a panel discussion on stage with local church pastors and a Liberty professor and Jonathan Falwell. And they were emphasizing that LU is not the church and to get involved in one here in town. And that's wonderful and a praiseworthy thing. I was pretty excited when I saw, you know, that topic and what they were doing and got excited. And then toward the end of that convocation, Pastor Jonathan of of Thomas Road, he really started to exhort the students not to bounce around to churches, but to pick one, commit to it, and really get involved. He said, don't spend four years church hopping. And the crowd started clapping, and I was cheering him on too, you know, my computer watching him. And then the moment came for him to tell the students how to decide which one to pick. And here's what he said. Quote, Find one that connects with your heart. Find one that connects with your mission. Find one that connects with who you are and your worship style and your opportunity to serve. Like, find it, get plugged into it. End quote. That's not good. 
That's not good advice. Why? What's he saying? He's saying, you are the standard and you should find a church that facilitates everything you want. Everything your heart wants. Your mission as defined by you. Your worship style, i.e. what you like or you don't like. Your opportunity to serve, i.e. the way you think that you can be most useful. Now why is that problematic? Because you're not the standard for those things. God and His Word is the standard and not you. You should be looking for a church that's pleasing to Christ, that's following His heart, revealed in His Word, not your heart. You should be looking for a church that understands Christ's mission as He has clearly laid it out in His Word, not mission according to you as defined by your desires, your own personal mission. You should be looking for worship that pleases Him as defined by Scripture. Not your own style that's just pleasing to you. You see, that pastor had an opportunity to direct these students away from their hearts to Scripture. He could have said, find one that's faithful to what the Scripture teaches that a church should be and do and commit there. And the saddest part to me was that this was a pastor offering this, that this is a pastor and he was offering this advice to the students and then several of the other pastors were amening him and applauding him as he was giving this man-centered advice for how to choose a church. The crowd continued to cheer. But do you know what's going to happen? Many well-meaning students are going to follow his advice. They're going to pick a church according to what their own hearts want, to what they think is important. And if that church happens to be unhealthy, or worse, that church is a false church, They're going to be in a very, very dangerous place spiritually and it will not end well for them. But here's the good news. We don't have to try to rely on our deceived hearts to choose a church. God has given us a clear word. He's told us what makes a church pleasing to Him, what makes it healthy, what makes it a place that will be life to your soul, And he's given us these evidences of health. That's what we've been calling this series. Evidences of health. He's given us biblical criteria. A fixed reference point to help us choose a faithful church to commit to. And like we saw last time, there's so much that we could talk about in a series like this. And it could go on for several weeks. And I'm not going to do that. Probably could go on the whole semester. But my intention here is to just keep things basic, high level, And so I've limited myself to four overarching evidences of health. Four signs that a church is faithful 
And it would then, therefore, be a healthy place for you to commit to. And we covered the first one last week, and, and it's, it's the, arguably the most important evidence of health. And it's that a church is actually devoted to Scripture. A church is devoted to Scripture. You can go ahead and turn to Acts 2.42, since we're reviewing here. A church that's truly devoted to Scripture, a church that has a high view of God and His Word, this kind of church, that's a, that's a healthy church. Or, like we said, it, it will become a healthy church over time if this remains true about the church and its leadership. And we saw last time that this was the very first description of the very first church in the book of Acts. Acts 2.42. When the Spirit was given to this first church, the very first thing He produced in this church was a commitment to the apostles' teaching. Acts 2.42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So when you're looking for a church, the very first question to ask is this. Does this church... Is this place committed to Scripture? Are they so committed to the truth that they're willing to suffer for it and they're willing to die for it if necessary? So that's extreme. That's what Stephen did a few chapters later in Acts. The church took a lot of heat for their devotion to the apostles' teaching. That's what the church in Jerusalem was willing to do. So ask yourself, is this place so committed to the truth, so committed to Scripture, the apostles' teaching, and their writings, that they're willing to suffer and die for it? And last time we learned that this devotion shows up not just in what the church does, or it shows up not just in what the church says in its doctrinal statement, but also in what it practices, what it does. So how does the church handle the Word of God in preaching? How does the church handle the Word of God in singing? How does it handle the Word of God in counseling and helping people grow? Are the individual members of this congregation being transformed day by day by the Word of God? We went into a lot of detail uh, uh, on this point last week. I mean, it was the whole time. So uh, I'm not going to re-preach that here. So it's on the website. If you missed it, if it's your first Sunday, and you're like, man, he's coming out of the gate hard. Um, just go check that out. And we will uh, move forward tonight. Well, devotion to Scripture is really uh, foundational for a church. That's kind of like the, the absolute baseline. Church needs to be devoted to Scripture. If a church and her leaders are truly devoted to the truth, over time the Lord will produce health in other areas as well. And so tonight I'm going to give you the rest of them. I'm going to give you three more evidences that show that a church is healthy. And a church that's faithful will be, number two, they'll be devoted to each other. There'll be a very healthy life that's happening in the body, a life of love that's happening there. They'll be devoted, number three, to leadership. There'll be a faithful shepherding ministry taking place in this church with faithful leaders. And then number four, they'll be ultimately devoted to replication. That's where we're headed. Now, as we wade into these tonight, we don't have the luxury we had last time of just taking our time through one point. Tonight, I'm going to give you a lot of info and a lot of Bible. 
So my advice here is to just try to catch the references on the drive-by and then go home later and look these up, study them, compare, you know, kind of what I've said to what you're reading there. And I think you'll be equipped even, even more just from this, this one sermon tonight. All right, sound good? All right, let's, so let's hit number two here. Second evidence is devotion to each other. Devotion to each other. So when a church understands the gospel, I see a lot of you writing. It's good. I just told you to write down the references. I'll let you write them down. The girls are like, we can multitask. The guys are like, thank you. All right, so when a church understands the gospel, that we were once dead in sin, that we were spiritual enemies of God, and yet God himself condescended to us to love us, to redeem us, to turn us from the spiritual jihad that we were against his kingdom to, to forgiving us and making us sons and daughters in the kingdom. When we, when we taste and experience that, we will be marked, we'll be transformed by the experience of Christ's love. By the truth. We'll know that Christ has called us to to pay it forward, so to speak. To extend His self-sacrificing love for the good of His people. And we will be devoted to the people that Christ loves. Which is His church. So, if you're already in Acts 2.42, you can kind of look down there. You can see this. Uh, you can see this here. It's exactly what we see in this first description of the church. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So the main verb there is devotion. They devoted themselves to, and then a couple things: teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So, not only was this church devoted to the truth, and they were, they were also devoted to each other. And you can't have a true devotion to the truth without a true devotion to God's people. Um, if you think you have a devotion to the truth and you hate the church, you don't have a devotion to the truth. Specifically, he says in this passage that this, these folks were devoted to three things. Fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Three things meaning like three additional things beyond just the truth. Fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. And all three of these are aspects of vibrant body life. So let's talk about each one real quick. When it says they're devoted to fellowship, what does that mean? Well, when you hear fellowship, think sharing. 
That means they were devoted to sharing. Sharing what? Well, sharing their lives with one another and sharing their possessions. That's what you see in this text. And breaking bread is, is one of the ways they did this. It's that next phrase we see there. Breaking bread. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. And that just means they shared their food with each other. It could mean they, they took communion together. But at a minimum, it means that they shared a meal. And we get a clear picture of this fellowship, this sharing, this breaking of bread in the very next verse. Luke says that they liked being together and they spent time together each day. They sold their possessions. They shared the proceeds with those in need. They had each other over for meals in their homes joyfully. And this is a sweet community of love. And it's produced by the Spirit. So back in verse 42, he also says they were devoted to prayer. Not just the fellowship and the breaking of bread, but also to prayer. He's probably talking about corporate prayer. Corporate prayer alongside the corporate teaching that was happening in the temple by the apostles. They were interceding for each other, for their growth, for their needs, and for the advancement of the gospel. Because we'll see that later in the book of Acts. We see the kinds of prayers that the church prayed together. But my point here is to show you that alongside devotion to Scripture, point number one, evidence number one, Alongside of this devotion to Scripture, the Spirit is also producing devotion to each other in a healthy church. And we could keep fanning this out. We could go to so many texts to unpack this point. Um, Romans 12, I think I have that one for you. In this passage, Paul tells us what kind of things we should be pursuing right here in this body to show our love for each other. You don't have to turn there. Just again, just write it down. He, he goes on in that passage to spell out what this devotion to each other looks like. He says, in verses 3 to 8 of chapter 12, that we should use our gifts to serve each other. And that means the members of a healthy church will be willing to set aside their own preferences and desires to serve the needs of their church members. They'll jump at the opportunity to meet needs because they recognize the privilege of being graced with gifts to build up the body so they'll be willing to serve. He also says in this chapter that we should love each other genuinely and sacrificially. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 12. So that means in a healthy church, people won't be two-faced. They won't be telling you what you want to hear. That's to, that's to love genuinely, to, uh, to love what's, what's true and to hate what's, what's false. They won't tell you what you just want to hear. They'll speak truthfully and sincerely to you. And this kind of love, Paul says, will be warm, it'll be familial and sacrificial. Or it'll be with brotherly affection. That's what he says in, in Romans 12. It has this familial undertone. It's sincere, genuine, and sacrificial. He also tells us that we should honor each other. In verse 11, so this means that a healthy church member won't be demeaning or rude to other church members, but it's going to strive to magnify the strengths of others and going to speak well about them to others. They're going to honor them. 
He also tells us to meet needs and be hospitable to each other in verse 13. This means then that a healthy church will have open homes and lives where people know each other, where needs and burdens are known, where help is found. And finally, he tells us to live in harmony with each other down in verse 16 of this same chapter. To live in harmony. Now, harmony sounds so nice, doesn't it? Sounds kind of easy, you know, just harmonize. But it's hard. It's hard to achieve. Healthy church members understand that harmony comes as we humble ourselves, as we seek forgiveness when we wrong other church members, and as we extend the forgiveness of Christ to those other church members who've wronged us. That's because a healthy church is not void of sin. Instead, a healthy church pursues the harmony that comes from reconciliation after we've sinned. So Paul says, healthy body life will look like harmony in the pursuit of that. Another word that's, that's used alongside of that in other portions of his writings is unity. And to try to preserve that. So you put all that together and... That's the vision that Christ has for his people. That, we're, that we sincerely love each other through thick and thin. That we work through our differences. That we repent and seek forgiveness. That we even learn to put up with each other. So what's that look like? If you're visiting a church, what would be some signs that a church has this kind of devotion to each other, or that are at least on the way, or at least maybe even, let's just say, the core, the healthy core, you know, the people who have been there longest. What are some signs? What could you look for from day one? Well, it'll be displayed in a number of ways, but I'll just give you some really easy, uh, easy evidences. It would be displayed in committed church membership. So what do I mean by that? Well, Rich talked about it just in the announcements. But the church will have some way to know who belongs to it. It's the easiest way to say it. Who's part of this church? Who are the elders responsible for? Who are we responsible to love? In Acts, all right, let's just build this out. In Acts, Luke traced... Which Jews had joined the Jesus movement? Right? So you got a bunch of Jews at Pentecost. They all worship Yahweh. Peter starts preaching to them. Some of them believe. And now Luke starts tracing this movement, numerically even. So he says, before Pentecost, it was 120 disciples. Chapter 1, verse 15. In Acts. We're back in Acts now. Chapter 1, verse 15. Then it increased... By 3,000, give or take, after Peter's first sermon. Chapter 2, verse 41. Then the total number of men alone amounted to about 5,000. Chapter 4, verse 4. And the point here is that in the first century, it was clear who was part of this church, this messianic movement. It was clear who was part of it, and it was clear who wasn't. 
it was clear who was under the leadership of the apostles and later then the elders of the Jerusalem church. And it was clear who was not under their leadership. Luke will say they were adding people. They were adding them, individuals, day by day, as they were being baptized into this new thing that was forming called the church. So that means then that the book of Acts has no category for a floating, unaccountable Christian. It doesn't exist in Acts. There's just no category for a Christian who's unaccountable to leaders, um, to a local gathering. But today, how does that fast? Let's fast forward a couple thousand years. All right? Today, there's not just one church of Lynchburg with a shared leadership. There are multiple local churches, and praise God for that. It's a good thing. And since that's the case, most churches have adopted something we call membership. Now, if this is a new idea to you, membership shows two things, all right? It shows that you are committing to this local church and that we are committing to you, right? It shows two things, that you're committing to this place and this place is committing to you. It shows that you're placing yourself under the shepherding care of our leaders here. And it means then that the leaders will give an account for your soul to Christ on that final day, according to the book of Hebrews. A healthy church will try to avoid people slipping in and slipping out and not making any real commitment to love and submit to a local congregation. That's what a healthy church will do. But some churches today, though, they won't ask for any commitments because they're afraid of driving people away by coming on too strong or whatever reasons they may give. But this isn't good. It's not good for the church, and it's not good for the individual. Part of being a Christian means we commit to loving others in the church. We just saw that. As hard as it might be at times. So a healthy church will encourage commitment. And it usually looks like joining the church as a member. So when you visit a church, ask about its membership process. Learn a lot about a church, how it thinks about commitment. Ask about its process. Is membership valued here? Do they encourage you to join? Why or why not? And even if it's not there in maybe practice, is it there in function? Do you know what I'm talking about? Some churches don't have a formal membership practice, some denominations, but it's functionally there. They understand who's part of them and who's not. And at TBC, when you join, the elders here begin to pray regularly for you. We pray collectively, and then we do so... And then, and then the individual pastors also pray, like the individual pastors of the ministry that you're involved in. So in this case, like it'd be boundless. We pray for you regularly and specifically and by name. But not only do we pray, when you become a member, we seek to actively shepherd you. That's our goal. Because we know that we will have to give an account for those Christians who have committed themselves to our church. It's not a numbers game. We're not trying to get more accountability on that final day from Christ. But we are trying to be faithful with with whom he has given us. So, 
that's a, a real easy way. You can kind of, if you're visiting a church, just kind of start exploring its membership process and do they, what do they think about that? Um, are they serious about it or not? Um, and then another way, kind of from a policy standpoint, another way you can know if a church is really devoted to each other is whether or not they practice something called church discipline. And that's where our Matthew 18 text comes in, under this heading. Now, when you hear the concept of church discipline, it may sound harsh or even cruel. I sound like the opposite of being devoted to each other in love, right? Like, discipline. Is that a thing? And certainly the practice can turn into that. It can be abused. Right? And some, some of you may have even experienced that in, in prior churches. But it surprises some people to realize that Christ has actually commanded the church to deal with people who refuse to repent of sin. This process is described in detail in Matthew 18 and a number of other places. So you can just flip over there if you're not already there. We'll read this. Because it's, it's just largely unpracticed in the evangelical church today. He says in verse 15 of chapter 18, Matthew 18, 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Step one. <laughs> if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. What's the goal? Gaining your brother, Right? But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, widen the circle a bit, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's saying in Jewish speak, let him be to you as an unbeliever. Treat him like an unbeliever because that's how he's functionally acting. So we'll stop there. The goal through the, throughout this process of discipline is redemption and restoration. That's the goal. And if you were to fan out and look at some other passages that, that, that touch on this concept in Paul's writings and other places, you'll see the exact same thing. is to restore the brother or sister who is falling headlong into unrepentant sin. Its purpose is to win our brother back from those patterns of destructive sin. Let's just like agree on this. Sin destroys people. Can we agree on that? Because that's what the Scriptures say. Sin destroys people. It's like warning someone. Church discipline is like warning someone not to drink poison. That's the most loving thing we could do. It would be unloving not to do this. We love each other enough in the church to move toward each other in love and in humility and to help each other follow Christ and to warn when we're about to self-destruct. And if somebody refuses to repent of sin in a congregation, 
And we're talking pattern, a pattern sin, and they're saying, no, this is not sin, I'm not going to repent of it. Jesus says you continue to ratchet up the pressure. First with a few people calling him to repentance, or her to repentance. Then it goes up to the whole church. And if they still refuse to repent, Jesus said we should treat them like an unbeliever and put them out of the church. Why is that? Because functionally, they're acting like an unbeliever by refusing to repent and to follow Christ. Jesus does not say to discipline those people who are trying to repent. He does not say to discipline those people who are struggling to repent. He's not saying discipline those people who fell into egregious sin and have realized it. He is saying discipline those who refuse to repent. And even here, the, the process is merciful. It starts small. The, the, the scope is extended only as the need, only as it, it's, it's required. Now, in, in most cases, this is a very, very slow process. With lots of shepherding care, it's, it takes, it, at a, usually, it's hard to put time frames on these things, because I say usually, because there are certain instances where you've got to go fast, but Usually, it's, it's a year or more of working with an individual. And thankfully, third-stage church discipline is rare at Timberlake. But it's happened on a handful of times in the last 15 years. It's grieving. It's very sobering. But the point is, we love you enough to follow Christ in seeking to get you to repent of habitual sin. Sin that will wreck you. Sin that will hurt others. Sin that will ultimately reflect poorly on Christ. We are willing for you to become offended by us to rescue you. So when you're visiting a church, check into whether or not it exercises church discipline. Do they have a policy for how to conduct it? Have they ever actually conducted it? What was it like when they did conduct it? Have they been able to restore anyone? If a church is unwilling to practice church discipline, you can know that it's not devoted to you. Truly not devoted to you. It might seem devoted to you when you walk in, but they're not. If they're not willing to warn you about sin to the point of putting you out of the church if you refuse to repent. But if it does, if it seeks to faithfully apply these principles... Instead of being unloving, that church is actually truly loving. They really are devoted to each other. Now, when we talk about discipline, that brings up another very important uh, topic, another important evidence of health in a church. These kinds of things take wisdom. Uh, They take healthy and humble leadership who know and love Christ. So in a healthy church, there will also be a devotion to leadership. There'll be a devotion to a healthy shepherding ministry. Now, the Bible puts a premium, a premium, on healthy leadership in the church. Puts a premium on it. It's very, very important. A lot rises and falls on whether or not the leadership are faithful with the Scriptures in the church. 
Now, when we talk about leadership, let's, let's take a second and pan out. Where does leadership start in a church? It starts with Christ. Okay? He's the senior pastor. He's the king. He's the head of the church. And as the head, he appointed 12 apostles. You can write down Luke 6, Luke 6.13, and then Luke 22.29. He, he chose them. He appointed them. Then later, he raised up Paul as another apostle to the Gentiles, Acts 9. These men, these apostles, and the, the co-workers that helped them, these men planted churches, and then they installed leaders in those churches. Acts 14, that's our first text here that I've got for you. Acts 14, 21 through 23. So Christ, apostles, and then they planted churches and installed these men called elders. In some places, most commonly called elders. They're also called pastors. They're also called overseers. Or if you've got a King James, bishop. It's all talking about the same, same person, same group of men. And the most common designation are elders. So that's what Paul's doing. He's Acts 14, he's planting this church, he's coming back around, he's making sure they have established leadership. So it's important to him. Leadership's important to Christ. He picked these men, and they picked more men, and that's, a, that's an important thing. How did he pick them? Just grab 12 dudes or grab a couple guys? Well, Paul gives us some insight into what he's looking for in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, also in Titus 1. He lays out clear qualifications for these elders, for these leaders, because he knew that a lot's riding on these men in the church. They need to be mature men. Men who resemble Christ's own character. Men who have been tested. And they also need to be able to shepherd people with His Word. That's the only competency test. There's lots of character tests. There's one competency test. Can they, do they know the Bible? Can they handle the Scriptures? Can they refute error? Can they build up the saints? Can they equip the saints? Ephesians 4.12 So these men, these qualified men, together they share the leadership of the church and they will give an account for the sheep that are under their care. Hebrews 13, 17. So this means then that a healthy church will value leadership. It will be devoted to making sure the leadership is healthy and qualified. It will take it very seriously it will only appoint men to the position who meet those qualifications and who eagerly fulfill Christ's own expectations for pastors. And then once these men are appointed, the congregation will eagerly and willingly submit to these leaders as the leader shepherd from the Word of God on behalf of Christ. That's also found in Hebrews 13.17. 
the church is commanded to submit to its God-appointed leaders. So, as you're visiting a church, what should you look for in a pastor or in the elders? What kinds of things has Christ tasked an elder to be about? So let me give you a few of them. Elders know the saints. Or we could say they are to know and be known by their sheep. We see this in 1 Peter 5.2 where Peter tells those elders there to shepherd the flock of God among you. Among you. That might seem like a throwaway phrase, but it is not. Okay? Especially in our day. Faithful elders will be among the sheep. They will know the members of the congregation personally. They won't shepherd them through a screen. They won't simply be a preaching-only pastor, pastor of preaching and vision, and never kind of be never see the sheep, kind of be whisked in before with a team and then whisked out afterwards to a green room, that's not a pastor. Faithful elders are called by Christ to know the particular sheep of their church and to live, get this, openly, to live open lives among them. Pastors can't help sheep they don't know, and sheep won't truly follow pastors they don't know. So, try to see if the pastors of the church are known by the members when you're visiting. And if the pastor's preaching to you and he's not there, I would not go to the church. Are the pastors, are they obviously available to spend time with the congregation? Do they linger after services? Do they open their home to you? Do church members know their shepherds? Do the shepherds know and love them? Do they take an individual interest in the sheep? Peter is very clear. We're to shepherd the flock of God among us. If you want another text on this, you can write down. This is for memory here. Test me later. 1 Thessalonians 2. Because Paul makes like five or six appeals to the Thessalonians, you knew how we acted among you. We gave you ourselves. I mean, just read that. It is moving. One of my favorite pastors about pastoral ministry. The great apostle Paul was right in there with those new Thessalonian believers. All right. So beyond knowing the saints, we've got to keep moving. All right. Easy to start preaching a whole message on one of these things. Okay. Beyond knowing the saints, faithful elders will also equip the saints. They'll also equip the saints. All right, we covered some of this last week, but faithful elders will teach God's word to you. Like the apostles in Acts 6, they will devote themselves to ministering the word of God. Acts 6 4. And they'll minimize other things to make sure they're able to do this. They'll also faithfully counsel you with God's Word. That's part of the ministry of the Word. They'll help you unpack the lies of your old nature 
Those lies that you're tempted to believe, that real that goes in your head, And they'll guide you to the truth. Help you see the difference. They'll walk with you as you learn to entrust yourself to Jesus and you learn to believe Him. They'll help you as you learn to obey Christ in that moment and not give in to those fleshly impulses. And beyond that, they will help you discern your gifts and maximize them to live a truly fruitful life. They'll be patient. They'll be gentle in this process. They'll seek to mend and restore you to a life of usefulness to Christ. That's equipping. And that's what Christ has tasked His shepherds to do. So elders then know the saints and they equip the saints for the work of ministry. So when you're looking for, the, for, for church and you're, and you're examining the pastors of a church, do they revere the Word of God? Do they depend on it alone for change? Are they themselves being evidently changed day in and day out by the Word of God that they're preaching? Connects to knowing the saints, right? Do they restrain their own counsel and advice and only counsel you from Christ's words? Are they helping you understand how to change? A faithful elder will equip you with Christ's words, and that's all we need. But according to Acts 6.4, as important as equipping is, this is not the only thing that they do. Acts 6.4, leaders are not only devoted to the Word of God, but they were also devoted to prayer. So, faithful elders will also pray for the saints. And that's because they know that they are nothing before God. And that God answers prayer. They know that God answers their prayer, has promised to answer their prayers for fruit in the lives of those they shepherd. And so they pray fervently. They know that God has promised to grant life-giving repentance through the prayers of His people. 1 John 5, 14-17. They know that. And so they keep track of the needs of the sheep and they consistently lift them before Christ in intercessory prayer. Now, if you're new to a church, this may be harder to discern, right? Prayer is often a very private thing. But listen in, when you gather in worship, listen in to how the shepherds pray during those services. Are they interceding for the members? And then maybe go up and ask an elder, hey, how do you guys pray for the church? Like, What's your practice look like on that? One of our practices here is we have a church roster that has all the, members, all the members on it, and we take it bit by bit every week. It's alphabetical. So we pray through that. And each elder gives an update on those members that he or she knows. Or she. He knows. He or she being. I was thinking about the church there. <laughs> um, our elders are all men here. So we give an update, and then we spend time in intercession for you by name. And then that's happening, again, in all of the ministry areas. The Sunday school classes, they all have their leadership teams, and they're, they're faithfully interceding for those saints within those little sub-flocks, sub if you will. 
So finally, faithful elders, they'll know, they equip, they pray, and then they also are examples to the saints. They're not perfect examples, but they're examples nonetheless. God has set apart the elders for the saints to show what it looks like to follow Christ. That's why these men must meet certain qualifications of Christ-like character before they become elders. The saints need practical and tangible examples of what it looks like to repent, what it looks like to renew their minds, what it looks like to fight sin and follow Christ. They need examples that they themselves can imitate. That's why you can't skip over the character of a man and appoint a a young man who's really gifted and charismatic to the pulpit because he's not truly an example yet. They need to be able to follow not only their pastor's teaching, all right, as important as that is, but I'm going to give you some categories, but also his conduct, his aim in life, his faith, in the promises of God, his patience during trials, his sacrificial love for others, his steadfastness under pressure, and even his endurance in persecution. If that sounds familiar, I'm drawing that from Paul's own categories in 2 Timothy 3. He called Timothy to follow him in those those ways. So then a faithful elder will also know that he is an example to the flock. That will keep him up at night. So ask about the church's procedure then for appointing elders. Learn a lot. How are those elders vetted? How are they trained? How are they installed? What would happen if one of them falls into a pattern of sin? How would they be removed? Would they be removed? What accountability is present? Also, try to discern not only just the shepherds, but try to discern the church members' attitude toward their shepherds. Learn a lot by that too. Do these people seem to respect their leaders? Now again, try to get a holistic picture, all right? Some people don't like us. And they stay in the church. But, do the people as a whole seem to respect their leaders and hold them in high esteem? Ask someone who's been at the church a while what kinds of things they've learned to imitate from their pastors. And just see what they say. Now, when a church is devoted to Scripture, when it's devoted to each other and it's devoted to leadership, one more and absolutely vital thing will happen. I'm going to be very brief on this. It's our fourth and final evidence of health in a church. This church will be devoted to replication. We'll be devoted to replication. A church that's healthy will not be focused exclusively on itself because its people burn with a desire for Christ to be glorified among the nations. 
His people burn with a desire for other sinners to be reconciled to God, just like they were. And it longs for other churches to be planted and brought up to maturity, just like this one. Or, to say it like this, it's, it, it will have a deep desire to replicate. So again, we could go to so many pastors, but since we just had a mission Sunday, and uh, I'm out of time, let me just focus on one. All right. In his final letter, Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy was investing in replication. And he didn't tell him to start a missions program. He didn't tell him to craft a church planting strategy. As important as those are. He did tell him, though, to invest in faithful men who could teach other people. Men was men are the method, in other words. What happens in a healthy church will go something like this. The pastors will faithfully equip the saints for the work of ministry. As the saints, everybody, using the variety of gifts they have, as they learn to use those gifts, the body will will grow to become more like Christ. Progressively, over time, slow, but it'll happen. And as the people become more like Christ, they also then become more bold in their effective witnesses in their community their work, their family. Because a mature disciple evangelizes. And the Lord uses these these folks to win other people to Christ. Because their life is compelling, their message is compelling. And also, the Lord stirs up the bee's nest sometimes, and there's persecution comes as a result of this too. So it's both. It's a both and. And so as the entire body then is growing... People are being added. The body's growing. People are maturing. The Lord then gifts some of those some of those members with a certain sort of set of gifts. So all the gifts are important. All the gifts are necessary. But then there's some in there that have leadership gifts, that have teaching gifts, and the Lord gifts those for future leadership. The church then identifies those men. It trains those men and eventually sends them out to either plant a church or take another church. There's a lot of nuance there. That's the gist of it. Either plant a church or take a church to maturity. Obviously, if you're planting a church, that's the goal too, to get that church to maturity. And then the process continues. So another healthy church that will replicate leaders, a surplus of leaders, and those leaders will be sent to the nations. So for Paul, the focus in a church needs to be on equipping faithful men for ministry. It's what he tells Timothy to do. 2 Timothy 2.2. So what does it look like? What, what, what could you look for in a church on this one? Well, you would want to see if that church understands that it, it falls on them to identify these gifts and then to to see to it that these people are trained in some way. Now, a church might not be able to facilitate that as well as another church, and that's okay. But they need to see that it's their responsibility to try to make this happen and facilitate it somehow. 
And then ultimately, even if that guy kind of goes away to a seminary, an institution outside the church, they're still responsible to, to ultimately send him. It's not the seminary's job. It's the church's job to launch future missionaries and pastors. And then, you want to see if they kind of understand that vision. And then, if they do, you want to see if it's actually being implemented. Is it happening? Are there resources in the budget dedicated to it? Do the current elders spend time with the younger gifted men to equip them to this end? Because it takes time. Are these men vetted in the context of the church? Are they discipled toward maturity? Are they sent out to replicate? Because if a church is healthy, the Lord will eventually start raising up other gifted men in surplus. Why? Because he's committed to reaching the nations with the gospel of his son. He's going to see to it that his mission is accomplished. So, I think that's enough for tonight. (laughs) We'll stop here. Uh, There's so much more we could talk about. Don't think these are the the, the only marks, the only biblical evidences of a healthy church. We didn't even touch baptism, communion, the ordinances. Those have been marks of the true church since Acts 2. We didn't talk about a discipleship culture. There's so many things we didn't talk about. We got left on the chopping block, all right? But even though it's not an exhaustive list, I think those evidences are a very good indicator of health. They will help you ask the right questions when you're looking for a church so that you can make biblically informed decisions. Not a decision that's based on your heart. All right? So what's my concluding exhortation? Find a church, any church, that's biblically healthy, according to Scripture. Join it and love it. All right? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for how patiently and tenderly you guide us in all things, even this decision on a church. We pray that uh, you would use these these two messages to equip us, to give us clarity if we have friends, family members that we're seeking to help influence. Uh, Guide us to those pastors in our conversations. And I pray if there's folks here that um, are looking for a church, they're trying to examine what to do and where to go, that they would start here um, in the scriptures first and let you give them what's important and then move out from there to the preferential things like music style and, and size of the church and all those other things that are interesting and important, but not as important as what you've said. So we pray that you would help us to, to prioritize these things. Thank you for your word, and thank you for these folks. They're just such a joy. And I pray that now you be pleased as we cultivate that very body life that we looked at by spending some time together. In Jesus' name, amen.